I, uh, last time I preached, I made a, a fatal mistake. I printed out um, the, what I was sharing that morning in uh, 14 fonts. And um, I, uh, I'm a little bit tall, you'll notice. Uh, so I could not read. Uh, when I got lost and I wanted to figure out where I was, I couldn't find it because the font was too small. So this time I went with 24 fonts. Um, so hopefully we'll all stay on the same page. And I don't know if that's a sign of, that I'm getting older or not. Um, I'm going to keep going with the tall excuse. Um, so you just go with me on that. Um, talking about uh, sort of doing life and, and, and just appreciating um, everything, I want to share one other quick story with you uh, th- this morning. Um, so any, anytime when you're, you know, you know you're going to be preaching and obviously there's other things going on, there's a student ministry also to make sure everything's going to uh, run smoothly for. So you want to get here a little early. So um, I get dressed, I look in the mirror, I'm like, hey, honey, I think I'm good. And she looks at me and says, and keep in mind, I'm completely dressed at this point. And she says, oh, well, your pants are a little wrinkled. And she already has the iron plugged in because she's ironing her clothes. And she says, I can uh, iron that for you. And I said, oh, yeah, but i got to take it off. And she goes, no, just stand really still. <laughs> so I'm standing here like that. I'm at a decision point, okay? And my first thought is, she went to Beth Moore yesterday, Okay? She's been there for the last couple of days. A lot of ladies, I think we had about 17, 18 ladies went. They had a great time. You didn't get a chance to go to that this year, go next year. But I'm thinking to myself, okay, she's been gone for a couple of days. She came home and the, ca- the house was clean. All right? The kids were alive and they were all accounted for. Everything is in a proper order. I feel like I can trust this right now. <clears throat> but um, I will tell you, my, my pants have never been... Um, with less wrinkles than they are this morning. So, what does this have to do with what we're going to talk about this morning? Um, what we're going to focus on is unity and oneness. And what Paul shares about unity and oneness. And, and uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians here in a few moments, but uh, we're going to sort of all get on the same page first uh, with sort of what is our um, response plan when we have a crisis, when there's an emergency or something happens in our life. Um, we're going to start there first, and then we'll, we'll sort of step back into the Scriptures. So all of us have been trained up um, in some way. Uh, sports teams, obviously, we're, you know, if you're a, a baseball player, you're trained on how to do a very specific number of tasks. In football, you're trained on, on how to uh, perform a, a specific play. Uh, if you're a police officer, firefighter, uh, you receive very specific, uh, specific training on what to do in a crisis. All of us in here have received some type of disaster preparedness training. Uh, if an alarm goes off, uh, we know we're supposed to take specific actions. Uh, if there's a fire, we know to stop, drop, and roll away from the fire preferably. Um, we all know that there are specific things we're supposed to do, and our training takes over. Um, now, what about um, our training at home? And when I say at home, I don't necessarily mean as part of our children. I actually mean um, our domestic training. I don't know about you, but I've been domestically trained pretty well at this point. Um, After uh, 10 years, um, I can do some things I couldn't do before. I can tell you I'm willing to take any of you men in the room. We'll take your cleaning of a toilet. We'll put it against my cleaning of a toilet. And we'll see who has the cleanest toilet, because I know that my wife has trained me well. I want to tell you, I can use every single centimeter, not inch, but centimeter of a dishwasher. I don't know if all of you can do that, but I've been trained to do that just right. And 
Don't even get me started on how to make a bed. I am excellent at making a bed, and I know how to fluff the pillows just so. All of this keeps me in unity with my wife, and we all know happy wife, happy life. Um, you know, as we uh, dive into the Word this morning, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to be looking at, well, what does Paul say about unity? Uh, what is uh, God um, sharing with Paul? Why does he do this? And what does he say about these different elements uh, of oneness? And we're going to uh, go through that today in Ephesians. Um, as, as we talk about that, one, one thing I want you to know about unity is the word unity is actually only used twice in the entire New Testament. And they all come within just a few verses of each other. And the reason for this is because, see, we didn't, we didn't need to go talk about unity in Ephesians and then also define it a different way and talk about it differently in other books. God put this to rest in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He let us know how to live as one. And the elements and the model to do that, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you would stand out of reverence and respect to the reading of God's Word, we're all going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 together. It says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with, the, with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the reading of your word, Lord. Let it open up our hearts and minds to truly understanding what you're teaching us and telling us about unity, Lord. Lord, we just thank you for this time we have together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we talked earlier uh, about training. And I will tell you, every one of us is going to go through some type of crisis. And what if I told you that every single day there's a potential crisis right around the, the corner, a potential disaster. And every one of those require some type of response from you. Now, how would you prepare yourself for those type of situations? Again, we've already talked about some of the training that you may receive throughout your life for, for other crises and things that happen in your life. But how are you preparing yourself for a gospel-led response. So I want to ask you some questions so we can all get on the same page with some of the things that may happen throughout your life and are likely have happened or may be happening right now. And do we have a gospel-driven response when these things happen to us? Have you ever been hurt by someone else? Yes. I think every one of us have been hurt by someone else in our lives. Have you ever been criticized? Have you ever been offended? Has someone ever sinned against you? And keep in mind, anytime we point the finger, there's three fingers pointing back at us. So have you ever sinned against someone else? Have, uh, have other people let you down or betrayed you? Has anyone ever betrayed your trust? Have you faced days of disappointment and despair? Have you experienced frustration and anger at the failure of your own self or at the failure of others? We have all likely experienced this some, in some way, and why is that? Because we're human. 
Because we're going to have frustration and anger and things are going to happen. Things are going to happen within our families, within our workplace, within the body of our churches. Things are going to happen because we're all different, because we're all sinners saved by grace. And why is that? So we could go all day with these different questions. And we all know the answers are likely going to be yes over and over again, that we have all experienced all these things in some way. But the bigger question is not have these things happened to you, but what is going to be your response when they do? See, we have a choice to respond out of our sinful nature. And I tell my kids all the time, hey, there is an action and a reaction. When your little brother, for no apparent reason, just walks by and punches you in the stomach, that doesn't mean you can haul up and hit him back. Okay? That's not the right reaction I'm looking for from, from you. Now, that's an, an example with our children. We all know in our own lives there are people who frustrate us, that we don't understand why they can't see things the way we do. Why can't we get on the same page? Why is it, why is it always them? I mean, they're the problem, right? I mean, it's not us. Our selfish nature makes it about our agenda. We make it about us and what we want to make it about instead of making it about God. So does our, does our response to these situations, does it come from repentance? Does it come from a heart resting in God's love? Or so many times is the way we react um, come from our sinful nature? So I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret this morning. It's really not a secret at all. We're all sinners living among sinners. See, we're all desperately needing people, rubbing shoulders with other desperately needing people. But see, this isn't all we have in common. What weak, needy sinners truly have to realize is that they absolutely need a sufficient Savior. That sufficient Savior that has been given to every single one of us. The question we want to ask ourselves this morning, though, are we trained up to give a gospel response? Are we ready to make it about Him and not about us? And when things get really difficult, I mean really difficult, I mean real feelings are involved, the ones where you wake up at 2 a.m. thinking about this thing that happened, the one where you can't stop telling your spouse about how if they could just be a little different, if they could just see things your way, how different that would make it. When we get into those times, does our Christian training take over? Because see, if a police officer was standing here right now, he would tell you stories of times where he was in peril and his training just took over. He didn't even have to think. His training literally stepped in front of him and really just took over his actions, his words, and what he did. As Christians, is our gospel response to a place where when we're crossed, when things don't go our way, when we're frustrated and we're angry, when we don't see eye to eye with other people, even other believers, that our gospel response just takes over? Instinctively, it literally takes over. Is that the training we've given ourselves? See, I had a, a wise mentor once told me, and, and this guy, he, he didn't actually speak a lot, right? He would hear me, I, I would talk a lot, and at first I was wondering, is this normal? 
Is this, how, is this how this mentor relationship is supposed to work? I seem like I'm doing all the talking, and he's just doing a lot of, you know, head nodding. And uh, he would be, and, and uh, at the end, he would sort of ask me a few questions and give me some some thoughts. And rarely did he ever say, did he stop and say, "Hey, I'm going to give you some advice." But I learned over time that whenever he did that, whenever he said, "Hey, I'm going to give you some advice," that's usually because I was going in the wrong direction, and I needed to stop and listen. And this was about five years ago, and I'm telling him, well, they just don't understand, and if, if they would just get on the same page, and, you know, they're always thinking a certain way, and he just says, whoa, whoa, let me give you some advice. I knew he was about to lay it on me. And he said, whenever you're talking to other believers, and you or them start using the words they, them, or there, you better stop, pause, and pray. Because more than likely, the words that are coming out of both of your mouths isn't a gospel-driven response. Man, I just became numb. You ever get that numb feeling where you literally feel almost kingly on the outside? That's how I felt. Because I was so convicted by those words. Because I realized that even though I had good intentions, it was all about them and their and they. Instead of saying, him. What does he want? What is the gospel-driven response that I'm going to give to these situations where we're not on the same page, where we don't see eye to eye, where I feel like I've been wronged in some way or this doesn't somehow go with my agenda? Am I giving a gospel-driven response? Am I on my agenda or am I on His agenda? See, for for some of us, some of this may be hard to hear or truly hard to really Say, well, you know what, that, that's me sometimes. Or, you know what, that, that was me yesterday. That may be hard for us to admit to. It may be hard for us to go to that place of repentance. See, the default by so many is to look somewhere other than Jesus in our response. Now, in my opinion, and I know I've been here in my own life, I think this is a, a massive uh, breakdown uh, in the discipleship of believers. The fact that we're not to a place where when life happens, because what I'm describing to you this morning is life. When life shows up in its ugly nature, that our gospel-driven response doesn't just instinctively take over. That's the kind of training we need. So guys, I'm going to actually pause for a moment and I'm going to pray over us this morning because... I know in my own life that I have these, these moments, I have these relationships, I have these people that in the, in the past that I haven't seen eye to eye with. I know that there's people right now that I need to reconcile with, that I need to ask for a repentant heart. And my guess is that there are many people in this room that have been in the same place. And before we move forward in this message and we truly can get to a place where we're going to open up our hearts and minds and say, God, whatever you want me to learn today, it is yours. I'm not here to steer it. You steer me where you want to go. For us to get to that place right now, I want us to pray, one, for those relationships, and two, that we're all in that place together. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I just um, pray for relationships, Lord. Those in our family, uh, those loved ones uh, that are so close and dear to us, Lord. Uh, and maybe also people um, here at our very church um, or at other churches, maybe other believers. Uh, maybe it's at work. But it's people that we love, that we care about, People that you have put in our path, Lord, give us the words, the wisdom to understand unity, to understand oneness, 
and what it really is, Lord, how you created it, Lord, and we don't need to recreate it. We just need to live in you. And, Lord, let us clear out any distractions, any noise right now to understand how to do so. Lord, we just thank you for being able to come to your throne of grace right now and have great expectations that you will show up and show off in each one of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have this uh, banana I brought with me. I did not bring this because we we are going to get into it today, all right? But I didn't bring this because I'm going to get a cramp up here or anything like that. It has good potassium. I ate ate one of these every day during the week because I play a lot of basketball. I don't want to get a cramp in the middle of a meeting. I bring this to you because I want want to share a little story with you. Um, Last uh, Monday, I took a banana like I always do, put it in my bag. Here's the mistake I made. I put it in the wrong pouch, okay? I put it in this. Normally, I keep all my food in this pouch. I put it in this pouch right here, okay? And that was on Monday. Thursday, I'm in a meeting. I'm in there with my vice president. He's giving me some specific direction. I'm like, oh, man, let me grab my pen. Got my pad out. I reach in to grab my pen. I think I feel something that feels like a pen. I squeeze it, hand right through the banana. Now, I have a choice. I can either pull that out and be like, hey, Mr. Vice President, would you like some of my squished banana? Um, Or, and I thought this was ingenious, by the way, um, or I can invent a brand new hand lotion and just sort of pull it out and just do like this for a little bit while I shake it, look at him and say, yes, you are a very smart man which is exactly what I did. And then I reached back down and through all the banana guts, found a pen that didn't have any on it, pulled it out, and we kept the meeting going, and he was never the wiser. So the reason I share that with you is this. Don't ever put a banana in your bag. No, seriously. The reason I share with you is that that banana, later when I pulled it out and there was banana everywhere, it was really awesome, um, that banana was black. You, you've seen a banana for several days, no oxygen, stuck in a bag. You can imagine what it looked like, okay? Well, I'm here to tell you, we're all a bunch of bananas, okay? Now, if you don't know where I'm going with this, every one of us are going to get bruised, all right? We're going to get beaten up. Uh, we might even get a little squishy, sometimes on the inside, all right? Um, the question is, is when that happens, when you get bruised and you get beaten and you get a little squishy, okay, because life is beating you up, what is going to be your response? Are you going to have a gospel-driven response or not? Are you going to pursue reconciliation? So when you need to reconcile with someone, are you going to pursue reconciliation through forgiveness and, and view that person through the lens of grace or not? We all have that choice. Are you going to come across self-righteous, force them to forgive, really play the defensive? If you have a relationship that you need to get right, are you going to go out and spend time getting them right or, or just sort of let them go because, you know, I'm get to that later or it's not worth my time and energy and effort right now. See, you are all going to sin against someone else. It's going to happen because you're human. You might not mean to do it. Um, you didn't premeditate it. But you're going to sin against someone else. Will you handle that situation with a response, though, that honors the gospel? Will you make excuses for your sin? Will you rationalize it, blame others for it? Or will you own it, humbly confessing it to God, asking for Him to take over, literally getting out of the way, forgiving that other person, letting God forgive you and move to a different place? 
Will you hide away playing the victim card and self-pity, sulking in your failure? Or are you literally going to take that sin to the high priest and ask for forgiveness? Let him, let him spread his mercy upon you. So I want you to think back. Like literally just pause for a moment. I mean, we're all friends here. We're all family. Silent in this room right now. Just think back to a moment where sin has impacted your relationship with God and others. Where sin has impacted your relationship with God and with others. Tough question here to answer, guys, on this next one. Are there people that are no longer in your life because you didn't have a gospel-driven response to whatever happened. Maybe you were at a point in your life, maybe you're still at a point in your life where you just don't have a gospel-driven response when the toughest things happen in your life. When you think about the words that Paul shares with us here in Ephesians, what is he telling us? What is he talking about when he talks about these different elements of oneness and how to be one? And we're going to dive into this and, and look at it, but there's some things I want you to, to be very clear to us. One, when Paul jumps in here, one thing is clear. Paul explicitly recognizes that there is friction among Christians. See, he would not urge Christians as he does. He says, maintain the unity of the Spirit if there were not differences among them. There were obviously forces at work in the church to divide the church, to move people in different directions, to break up the Christian body. There were pressures among them to break up into splinter groups, to counteract, the, uh, counteract these pressures. The apostle urged them. He said, be eager to maintain the unity. Be eager to maintain the unity. Now, the word eager, okay, is actually a, a little bit weak here, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, it depends on the translation that you look at. Uh, you know, an eagerness implies mere willingness. So a willingness to keep the unity. But the original Greek word suggests willingness plus action. Okay, the original Greek word suggests willingness plus action. So Paul is saying be proactive, take positive, aggressive action to maintain unity. Now one thing he's clearly not saying is you don't need to go create Unity. This may be a little confusing for some of us. The thing we need to understand is, is we don't need to look at unity on the surface and say, well, I need to go create this new form of unity. And we do this all the time as humans. We take things that are very simple and we say, well, we're really smart and we can make it better. So let's take unity and we'll do all these great things and we'll take all these smart people and, you know what, we'll create this new brand of unity. And what Paul is saying is, do not do that. Fight that temptation. Move away from that. All you need to do is follow what I have already given you, the instruction I already have given you to not create unity, but to live in unity. And he gives these elements on how to do that. And we're going to walk through those elements together. You know, the King James translation uh, is even more accurate in this regard. It says, earnestly endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I don't know about you, but when I just think, um, when I'm eager, like I'm, I'm, I'm eager to go play basketball tomorrow morning, see my, my good friends and spend some time with them, and we're going to go out there and run a lot and sweat a lot. I'm, I'm eager to do that, actually. I know, I know it's a little bit crazy to go spend an hour and a half um, doing that with a bunch of sweaty guys. But um, 
But you know what? I am earnestly endeavoring on what our students, what ministry, they, what next ministry idea they're putting together. You know, I, I, I just, I, that just excites me so much. And I want to be proactive and I want to be aggressive because I want to see Jesus Christ move in their life so much. Because when they graduate, I want them to know who Jesus Christ is and have no doubt about it. And I want them to have this oneness of we do life together. And that is the proactive, the earnestly endeavoring spirit that God has given me for them, for their lives, and for their future. And that's what Paul was talking about here. Not just be eager, but go out, be earnestly endeavoring in living unified lives together. Now, certainly, it is unrealistic for Christians to pretend there are no differences among us. I mean, we're all different. We all may get to the same place, but we all may get there a different way. But let's look at these elements and see, what does Paul talk about when he talks about one body and one spirit and one hope? And we'll get to the rest here in a moment. First off, one body, Romans 12.4 tells us, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. The body is our church. But it is one body. And the one thing that aligns us is that we're all part of this body for the same reasons, and that is to know and love Jesus Christ, to have a greater, closer relationship with our Creator. We may not all agree with what we do with all our resources. We may not all agree with every program and everything that our church does. But the one thing we can always agree as a body is that there is one body, and that is the church. See, the church is intended to be an instrument of life. But if you just put a bunch of dead bodies together, that's not going to drive much life, is it? The power of the church to influence society, that doesn't derive from saying, hey, we're going to take our human power and we're going to sway a bunch of votes because we want to go right or left, up or down. See, that's not real power. But that's sort of the human power. The, when we define power, that's a lot of times the way we think about it. Those are, are the realms that we, we play in, if you will. See, God's plan can't be achieved by worldly power. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says, uh, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. It's the impossible task to take superhuman power. That's the role of the church in the world is far beyond the powers of men and women. We absolutely need a Spirit. The body must rely on the Spirit to accomplish the goal. It can't do it any other way. Too many times, though, we take a look at power in numbers. Well, if we have 600 people, we should be able to do all these specific things. What does the Spirit want us to do? Where does God want us to spend our time, energy, and efforts? Is the body, all of the people in the church, on the same page with the place we get our power from, the place we look for direction, is the Spirit. One body, one Spirit. See, the church is to trust and depend on one thing only. 
The Spirit of God. Not how smart our leadership team is. Not the many ideas we come up with. Not the people we put in, in charge of a committee. Certainly we trust those people to do a good job, but we trust. And our ultimate trust is in the Spirit of God. There is one body and one Spirit, says Paul in Ephesians 4.4, 4, and then he goes um, on to link the Spirit to the hope we have in Christ. He says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So do you see that these factors are linked? You have to have one body who believes solely in one spirit and has one hope. Now what is this one hope? And all Christians should be aligned on what this one hope is. And this one hope is the return of Jesus Christ to earth. It's the one hope that we can all look forward to. We can all look back on the life, death, resurrection, and the spirit that was given to us. And we can all look forward to this one hope, the return of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most distinct expression of this um, is given by Paul in Colossians. Paul writes in Colossians 1.27, says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, glory is the hope of the church. The hope of the church is that Jesus Christ is going to come back one day. Amen? Amen. There is only one final expectation of Christians everywhere. And that expectation should absolutely bring oneness to how we think and how we act. And that expectation is that, that we share is in the glory of Jesus Christ and Him returning. Now when Paul says, one Lord, this seems pretty intuitive. This seems pretty simple on the surface. But let's take a look at this. Now the word Lord means ultimate authority. To call Jesus Lord is to recognize um, Him uh, as the supreme person in the universe. There is no other Lord that will never be another Lord. Those are all things Christians can, can clearly agree on. Uh, Peter puts it bluntly in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, the mystery and marvel of this man Christ Jesus who lived and walked and loved and worked and lived uh, with each one of us and died among men whose life record is given to us in the gospel. He's also Lord of the universe, the supreme being, the creator of all things. He is the God-man. There should never be any question on that, and it should bring us closer together in oneness and in unity when we understand, and that's the place that we start from. We start from the place that we have one body that has been given to us by Christ. We have one spirit who is Christ. We have one hope that points us to the future, which is Christ coming back. And one Lord who is Christ. Now what about one faith? Again, it may seem pretty simple on the surface. On the other side, it may be a little bit more difficult for some to understand. What does he mean when he says one faith? See, Paul, he's not referring to faith in general here. Because 
everyone have has faith in some way. Some may say, well, I can't believe that. I'm sure we've all thrown that line out about different things. But the truth is, is that we believe things all the time. All actions come from belief. I believe that when I leave today, um, I live about a mile from here, and I believe that I'm going to be very safe going home in the rain. I've done it hundreds of times. But the truth is, I have no idea. But I have faith, I have belief that I'm certainly going to be safe. See, an atheist acts from belief, even though we may not agree with those beliefs, and a Christian acts on their beliefs. In Jude chapter 3, it says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. See, guys, this one faith, of course, is associated with Jesus Christ. This one faith that we speak of is Jesus Christ. And it's his scriptures. Because we can all have debates. We can sit here in a room with some really smart people, and we can have different uh, debates on, on doctoral uh, details and biblical interpretations. This is exactly what they meant. Well, no, this is what they meant. For one thing that should never be in dispute is that this is the Word of God. That our one faith comes from Him and Him alone, comes from His Word, His direction, and His guidance in our life. Amen? Amen. Now what about one baptism? I don't know about you, but the last time if I tried to look at all the churches and all the Christians out there and say, well, of course there's only one way to baptize, you hear probably a lot of laughter. I mean, let's face it, if you uh, talk to a Presbyterian, they're going to tell you, well, sprinkling is the only way. And then they're going to say, well, Baptists, they're all wet. All right? Because, of course, we're going to say, well, immersion is, is the way to go. Some denominations are going to say, well, of course you should baptize when they're a baby. And others are going to say, well, no, you have to wait till they're adults so they understand the decision that they're making. But is that really what Paul is talking about here? Is Paul talking about the symbol a baptism? Or is he talking about something much greater than that? See, despite the obvious differences in the symbol of baptism, and that's what all these different things are, um, they're just a symbol of the decision that you've made. It's the decision that's important. It's the decision that defines us. To be a follower of Jesus, Jesus Christ, to have this one baptism, you have to make a decision to come forward to ask Jesus Christ to forgive you, forgive you for your sins, to ask Him into your life and to be changed thereafter. That is the one baptism. So even though we may have different opinions on the symbol, the one thing that should always bring us together as Christians is the fact that there is truly only one baptism, and that is asking Jesus Christ into your life, to be the Lord of your life. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5 says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. 
You know, before we talk about this, this last element, our Father, I want to tell you a little story. A little story about a local church. Um, this church is, is right outside the West End. And, and during the 80s and 90s, they really experienced quite a bit of growth in this church. Um, their pastor was homegrown. Uh, he knew, uh, grew up with uh, many of the, the folks that were in the church. Now, if you think about that area, just right outside the West End, has gone through a lot of change um, in the past 15, 20 years. Uh, we can all think back ourselves to when we would drive down West Broad Street and it was nothing but farmland, uh, where the Short Pump Mall is now and Walmart and all the many stores and restaurants. Now this little church, as the West End started to boom, this church started to grow. And they went from almost a couple hundred members to several hundred members and almost a blink of an eye. But see, here's something that happened. That little church uh, was sort of built up by the people of Rockville. And the pastor was from Rockville. And all of a sudden, when you had all this new blood coming into the church, they were from all these different places, a lot of different opinions, a lot of different ways we should have services and, and do things. Over time, the church started to splinter. And they had grown to a place of more than 450 believers there every Sunday. And the new folks had asked, well, hey, I think we need some new blood. We need a new pastor. So the pastor was ousted and he left and they brought in a new pastor. And he never really clicked with the, the locals because they had built the church and this was their church, right? And we all see where that line of thinking takes you to a place, a very dangerous place. Now today, that church has gone from about 450 folks there on Sunday to just a little over 100. Continuing to try to grow their roles, reaching out to an area where the churches around them continue to explode. I don't know the last time that you've been down Pouncey Tract or Knuckles Road and you see these churches and they continue just to add on and add on and add on because they continue to grow while this, continue, this church continues to shrink. And why is that at the end of the day, though, right? Like, I gave you the story, but is that really the answer? Absolutely not. Because everybody who walked in the door, whether they were from Rockville or they were from New York City or Pennsylvania or wherever they came from, they all came in the door saying, we believe in Jesus Christ. But their actions in unity didn't show they believed in Jesus Christ. Because their decisions, what they wanted was very self-centered. It was about them. It was about their own agendas. I recently talked to the, now the, the second pastor there is now the former pastor. He also left the church after he wasn't able to revive it. And I recently had a chance to, to talk with him um, about some of those challenges and what he's doing now. And he told me every day he prays for that church, prays for unity and oneness. And he talks specifically about Ephesians and looks at himself and says, if I just could have got the church to understand that it all starts with one spirit, one faith, one body. If I could have just got the church to understand that. And the thing is, is that he could have preached that every Sunday. He could have had the Sunday school teachers going over that. He could have, again, tried to recreate unity. But what have we already talked about? You don't need to recreate unity. You need to understand what true unity really is. 
and then it's already been given to us. And how are we actually going to follow unity directly from His Word? Are we going to really look at our church as one body? Are we going to understand that there's only one Spirit? There's only one baptism? There's only one hope? Are we going to live that way with our actions? And when we have our response plan, when someone frustrates us, makes us angry, upsets us, are we going to go back and let instinctively our gospel-driven training jump in and just take over? Because I don't know about you, and I'm not there yet, but that's where I want to be. Okay? I want my gospel-driven training to jump in and take over every single time because left to my own decisions, I'm going to mess it up. Okay? I'm going to say something I shouldn't say. I'm going to cross a line. I'm going to do something I know I shouldn't do, especially when feelings or emotions are involved. What I absolutely need is that gospel-driven response just to take over. In the Holy Spirit, you have it. Because in my human nature, I can't do it. God, let's talk about the one Father. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, it says the apostle gives us gives us this last uh, of the seven elements of unity. It says, One God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. So here is the ultimate aim of all the other unities. All of the others, every one of them, exists, as Peter puts it, to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 He is the goal in the aim, the sign that we have truly found God is that we recognize Him as Father. Abba, Father, as it says in Romans 8.15. John writes in his first letter that the unmistakable mark of a newborn babe in the family of God is that he intimately and immediately knows his Father and calls Him Father. 1 John 2.13 See, he is the end and the beginning. He is the beginning and the end. All things exist because of Him and all things lead back to Him. So many times we try to take God and we try to put Him in a box, okay? We want to put Him on the shelf. We want to define Him the way we want to define Him. And that's not even possible. He's not a remote mind. He's not a first cause. He's an infinite being. But He's so much more than that. He's a person, and He wants to know us. He wants to know us intimately. He wants to have the same relationship that we have with our Father. In fact, so much more so than that. Once you truly know God the Father as He desires to be known, then you find that the only adequate way to refer to Him is to address Him as Father. No, not even Father, but but Abba, which is Aramaic, which literally means Daddy or Dada. Just think about, and for you fathers, you know exactly what I'm going to speak to here. Think about those moments where you've had just a cruddy day. Nothing has gone your way. You walk in that door, and your little son or daughter just looks up at you with those big eyes and just says, Daddy, Daddy reaches out for you. And then in an instance, the world, pressure and everything, just poof, gone. Because all you're worried about is that little voice who just reached out to you. 
and called you daddy. See, that is what God, our Father, when He says one Father, that is what He wants from every one of us. For us to look at Him and say, Daddy, I don't need to take this anymore. Daddy, I don't need to take this on by myself. Daddy, I can't do this with my own understanding because I am. if I only try to do it by myself, I'm going to get it wrong every single time. Daddy, just hold me. Take it from me. And please don't ever let go. And he won't. He'll hold us in his arms. And he'll never let go. The only time he lets go is when we push him away. And then he still tries to get us back. And we all know and have likely experienced this in some way. When you think about unity and oneness, you think about your gospel-driven response and what God expects and wants out of every one of us. Again, we don't have to create unity. He's already given it to us. The question is, are we ready to take it? Are we ready to just give ourselves to Him? Are we in, in a place where we're ready to respond? At the end of every service, we always have a response. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word response, that means an action. When I say response, that's not just, well, I, got some, I learned some things today, I understand this a little bit better, I've got some more head knowledge, I'm going to go home and I'm going to have a great lunch with my family. A response means what are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond with action? And think about the words that were used earlier. Is your action going to be aggressive? Is it going to be gospel-centered? The question for every one of us this morning is how will we respond to God's calling of unity and oneness? 